Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. In a world of relentless high-velocity news, sometimes it pays to take a step back and look at the big picture. Our guest this week, the US economist Brad DeLong, does that with some aplomb in his new book, Slouching Towards Utopia, a sweeping survey of economic development from the late 19th century to the present day, and an attempt to work out how we've ended up in this period of roiling economic crises. As well as making a big argument about the nature of economic life in the so-called long 20th century that started in 1870, Brad's book is full of winning vignettes and works just as well as a piece of narrative history as an argument about economics. I began our interview by asking Brad about the two Austrians who are at the heart of his grand narrative. All grand narratives are false, right? The world's a complex place. Some are useful. Um, I chose the least false one I could think of, um, which is that the long 20th century is a debate, intellectual, political, sociological, and policy, between Friedrich von Hayek and Karl Polanyi. Um, Both guys from Vienna, uh, both guys who wound up spending a lot of time in Britain and in the United States, um, Friedrich von Hayek saying that the way to deal with the world is to say the market giveth, the market taketh away, blessed be the name of the market. In the context of modern science and engineering, the market economy can give us enormous wealth, but that's all it can give us. And asking it to do anything more is to put even that in substantial jeopardy without any countervailing gain. Karl Polanyi says that that idea that... Um, all we can do is accept what the market gives us. Um, that that stark utopia in which the only rights that matter are property rights um, is not something that people will stand for. People will demand other rights as well and that their other rights be vindicated. Um, people will demand that they have a stable community that they can understand and that they feel a place in. People will demand that they have... Um, you know, that they actually be able to plan and live their lives, that, you know, if they lose a job, that they can find a new one um, pretty quickly, that their entire occupation and industry and community will not simply blow away because some rootless cosmopolite 5,000 miles away decides um, that it needs to change. Um, And people demand that they get the income they deserve and also that other people don't get bigger incomes than they in their turn deserve. 
So the long 20th century is this enormous debate between von Hayek and Polanyi in which underlying technological change proceeds and the market attempts to grab it, uh, but in so grabbing it sets in a Polanyi and counter-reaction and, you know, as the forces of production, the technological forces of production change or revolutionized every generation, the kind of running, the running sociological code for society cobbled together on top of that has to change too. It has to be rewritten on the fly and rewritten under these pressure, these conflicting von Hayekian and Polanyian principles. It produces a hell of a mess. And that hell of a mess is the history of the 20th century. I'm interested as well in the way that you chose your start and your end point, because your long 20th century is a sort of a rejoinder to um, Eric Hobsbawm, yes. the British communist historian's short 20th century. So how did you pick yours is 1870 to 2010? Um, what made you pick 1870 to begin with? Can you is this when you start to see a pronounced change in Kind of growth pattern. Well, in truth, it is annoyance at the excellent and brilliant Eric Hobsbawm, right? Um, that we all read The Age of Extremes when it came out in 1994. And I remember a series of discussions at the Harvard Faculty Club um, about, or was it? Could it have been at the Harvard Faculty Club? Um, I remember it having been so, but the time doesn't, times don't really add up, do they? Um, I have this picture of David Landis and Jeffrey Williamson and I agreeing that Hobsbawm was telling the wrong story and that the real story is the story of technological change like a rocket and the consequences that that had and the story that Hobsbawm sees as the main thread of the short 20th century. You know, the rise, defeats, victories and collapse of world communism is just one piece of a much broader story. Um, and that someone ought to write a book about it. Um, and then by 1998, no one was writing that book, and I was thinking maybe I ought to. Um, so I wrote a chapter, and then I kind of didn't do anything for a decade. Um, and then after a decade or so, um, Tim Sullivan of Basic Books said, why don't we put you under contract? Because it will give you an incentive to work on this thing, and maybe it'll get finished. And lo and behold, now it is. So when you when you look at the world now and you see huge seminal events taking place since 2010, have you thought at any point, well, maybe we'll have to do a second edition? And Oh, there'll certainly be a second edition. Um, and I hope a third as well, eventually. You know? Yeah, I mean, 1870 starts because before 1870, humanity is desperately poor and technological advance is not fast enough to even create the possibility of humanity not being poor. Um, it was, I think, in 1871 that John Stuart Mill was writing that all the mechanical inventions up until now have done nothing for the, have done nothing to ease the life of the working class, but only enabled a greater number to live the same life of drudgery and imprisonment. After 1870, technology takes off like a rocket. Um, humanity's technological competence doubling every 30 years from then until 2010. But after 2010, um, technological growth appears to have slowed down again substantially. 
all claims that we were actually learning how to manage our economies for full employment and stable prices have kind of gone out the window. The idea that the United States was in some sense leading the world into the future as the saying what the future was going to be like technologically and sociologically, that has fallen away as well, as as the belief that first Britain and the United States are some kind of largely benevolent hegemon over a rapidly expanding and becoming richer world. Um, add to that our failure to deal with the what will be the challenges of the 21st century. Um, whether further nuclear proliferation or global warming, um, and it seems plain that the that the big history I told of the 20th century, in which you have enormously rapid technological advance, you know, with the United States as kind of the furnace where the future is being forged, in which there is this debate between von Hayek and Polanyi about how do we build a society on top of our technology that can produce a world in which there's not just a sufficiently large economic pie that we actually slice it so that everyone has enough and then taste it and then utilize it properly so people can be happy um, and lead worthwhile lives, you know, that as the main thrust of history seems to be gone. And the history of dealing with global warming on the one hand and explaining to people elsewhere in the world why they should like a system like ours that produces leaders like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump rather than a system that produces leaders like Xi Jinping, who is at least bureaucratically highly competent, um, in which those are the big problems that humanity faces, and history takes a different turn. Yeah, I was interested, you mentioned Mill there towards the beginning of your, your answer, and I don't, I don't mean this as, a, as damning with faint praise, but uh, it's, it's a very nicely written book for an economist. Um, it's... Um, <laughs> But I mean, were you uh, conscious Tom of? Um, and Brian sorry. For down the right. Yeah, I think editors, as an editor, I agree. You don't. We don't get enough credit. Um, uh, were you conscious when you were writing the book that you were kind of situating yourself not just as an economist, obviously you're a professor of economics, but somewhat in the tradition of what in the nineteenth century we called political economists. So you're writing about more than just. Um, productivity and things like that, but there's also a kind of ethical and moral framework to what you're talking about. Yes, and that became very, very clear um, when I decided which book I was going to write. You know, that is, I could have written a book about science and technology and their economic applications, a kind of Michael Polanyi book. I could have written a book about, you know, technology and industry, the David Landis book. I could have written a book about, you know, um, a Joseph Schumpeter-like book or a John Maynard Keynes-like book, but um, the moment I'd settled on Karl Polanyi as my grand narrative, as that thread, that forced this into a political economy book, um, into the vein in which things that weren't of first-class interest for that grand narrative got kind of thrown over the side, um, especially since the original manuscript had... Um, a thousand pages in it with notes and quotes and outlines for writing perhaps 600 more. And do you know the fact and getting finished on about 530, I think. Yes, yes. And getting so. down to that, once again, thank the editors, 
but huge amounts of stuff got thrown over the side. Right? Like there are two digressions on technology, um, one on alternating current electricity and Nikola Tesla, and the other on semiconductor microprocessors. And those are the remnants of kind of the the book that would have been much more like David Landis's Unbound Prometheus, um, darlings that I simply could not bear to cut um, and so stayed in, um, even though they're not terribly political economic themselves. The rest of the book is. Um, so it's much more a political science, um, or I'd say it's a 50% it's political science book, at least. I'm yeah. trespassing a little bit outside my discipline here. Yeah, the bit on transistors especially is, um, I think the word mind-blowing is overused in contemporary sort of discourse, but it really is. like I can't actually physically conceive of something being that small and that precise and the way you describe it. Um, and yet our brains are smaller and more precise, or at least more massively parallel, even if not precise. Yeah. One thing, you you mention this in the book, and you have a chapter specifically on what we'll broadly call the global south. But do you think that, I mean, were you conscious that your your long century would probably start in a different place if you were a Chinese economist, say, or an uh, African or yes. something? And in fact, my friend Ying Yi Qian from Tsinghua, who was through here this summer, um, said that the book um, that the book that people will want to read in twenty one hundred um, it has its hinge in nineteen eighty. You know that the accession to power of Deng Xiaoping in China and of Rajiv Gandhi in India and their dismantling of Maoism and the License Raj in some sense will have a better claim to be the hinge of history than the acceleration of technological progress in the global north in 1870. And that the fact that my book is so global north focused um, lessens its, lessens its long-run um, usefulness. And, you know, that's a fair point. That's a very fair point. Is it fair to your, to your end, though, that, you know, the global north is where most of this growth was taking place? So you've got more of a story to tell. Than... It is. There's more of a story to tell. And it's a story that I know much better. And, you know, every time I did venture into Chinese history, political economy and economics, I got really scared because I don't think I understand it terribly well. Um, I've already found, as Yingyi pointed out, I put the port city of Dalian in um, Shandong, and actually it's, Liao, it's in Liaoning. So 1.4 billion people will think I'm a geographical doofus. Um, and yeah, I wish I could have done more, but you know, the Global North and selected vignettes that I think are typical and representative from the Global South since 1870. Um, is all I could do. And, you know, as I say, the book is not short as it is. You said something there that I'm interested in. You said that, that your friend um, would say that uh, the accession of specific politicians in specific countries was the thing that people would be talking about in, yeah. in 2100. I wonder where you see the balance between sort of political institutions and scientific change in terms of how each drives growth? I, I realise that's quite a broad question. but Well, you know, they are, they are inextricably linked and they are... There is more human agency or perhaps simply dumb luck 
you know, involved in the politics than in the technology that, you know, someone like Nikola Tesla, um, Nikola Tesla sees how to make electrons get up and dance in a way that no one else does, that not even, that what he did with alternating current electricity, not even James Clerk Maxwell, who found the equations for it, um, would have been able to envision. Um, the fact that Tesla was there and the fact that George Westinghouse was there to slot Tesla into an industrial research lab so he was not a raving crank, but instead an ideas booster whose ideas then could be taken and run with by others. And then the Westinghouse Corporation funded by J.P. Morgan to actually deploy these worldwide and then everyone else copying them. That maybe pushed um, a tenth of the economy forward um, by 10 years. Um, you know, crudely, we as a world are probably now 2% richer because Nikola Tesla lived and George Westinghouse discovered him and was able to slot him into the organization. And I think that's the most decisive thing for good um, done by an individual human on the technology side. You know, by contrast, you know, um, Without Franklin Roosevelt, the world would almost surely be a much, much worse place. Um, without Adolf Hitler, the world would almost surely be in a much, much better place. You know, Joseph Stalin is an interesting question because, yes, he murdered millions of people and had directly and indirectly tens of millions but also only a paranoid psychopathic madman would have built a major industrial complex at some place like Magnitogorsk on the far side of the Ural Mountains from Germany. And, you know, having a tank factory in Magnitogorsk may well be the only reason that Germany is not now ruled by, you know, Hitler's disciples and their heirs. Um, yeah, individual humans and the chances of politics and political economy are butterfly wings subject to the butterfly effect, while technology seems to be much more like a river that we can speed up or slow down, but not really Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah, um, do you think, you say that, um, you described the period from 1870 to 1914 as an El Dorado, it's got the first El Dorado. What, one thing I was struck by that you say in the book is that the growth rate then and then and the growth rate in the last sort of 40 odd years has been pretty similar. But it seems like we're all far more down on things now than then. Do you think that perhaps we can be a bit pessimistic or negative about how the rate of progress in our own era versus previous ones? That people who had grown up at all before 1914 and had, you know, learned, looked and understood their parents' lives, you know, thought correctly that the rate of economic growth between eight and technological change between 1870 and 1914 was totally amazing. You know, that nothing like it before had ever, you know, been seen. And that, in fact, is where economic El Dorado comes from. It's John Maynard Keynes's description in 1914 or 1919 of the pre-1914 two generations. You know, Winston Churchill says something very similar in his books on the world crisis. You know that the world crisis itself was so disastrous and so unexpected because it came after such a long period of time in which, for the first time in ever it had seemed that one actually could be utopian. And then one finds this a completely incredible and unbelievable prolonged slaughter. And then this failure to get a good system cobbled together so that progress could resume after 1919. Um, You know, that the technological underpinnings had changed and people had failed to successfully rewrite the sociological code running on top of the technological foundation, technological hardware. And so as a result, you know, ideas about social Darwinism that had been developed so that the rich who had become rich by the market could justify their wealth before World War I had somehow fueled an enormous war that had killed 20 million people and maimed 20 million more and destroyed two years worth of total production. Um, and he had to figure out what to do next. And no one was doing too good a job at figuring out what to do next. I just, I wonder, um, people refer to to the last few years, um, COVID and the pandemic, as a, a war-like economic event. Do you think that that is actually an apt comparison? When you look at 1914 to 1918 and the damage that wrought on a far less developed world and compare it to a shorter period far fewer deaths and so on. I mean, are we, again, is this a matter of kind of hedonic adaptation where, because life is so much better now, we think... We're used to much better. And so a much smaller shock looms large in our consciousness. But I do think we all, or at least all of us who've thought about it, know that the COVID plague is one-tenth of the Spanish flu. You know? And the kind of war on terror and the Russian attack on Ukraine and so forth together are less than one twentieth of World War One. And the Great Recession was, thank God, only about a quarter of the Great Depression. Um, yeah, but still, you know, we kind of expect better, right? That you know, before eighteen seventy, you know, I mean. 
Humanity was really under the Malthusian harrow. Technological progress was so low that human fertility would always catch up to it. And so as a result, there was no possibility of make producing enough for everyone, which meant that governance was overwhelmingly an elite figuring out how to run a force in fraud, exploitation, and extraction game on the rest of society. And, you know, in a desperately poor world in which the principal business of the elite is to be a bunch of thugs with spears, um, supported by bureaucrats and accountants, and, you know, disjustified by propagandists, um, you know, that, that, that the fact that that was history before 1870 um, meant that a sudden return of a history of destruction in 1914 was perhaps not as big a shock as it is, you know, as it, as it has been to us. You know, but we expect better. Um, we know that we are now rapidly solving the problem of baking a sufficiently large economic pie that everyone can have enough um, to live a life that's kind of safe, secure, healthy, and happy and purposeful. And yet the fact that success, even though we're baking the pie, um, the fact that slicing the pie and tasting the pie, right, that um, equitably distributing what we're producing and then finding utilizing it so that people live lives in which they are safe, secure, healthy, happy, and purposeful. Those problems are turning out to flummox us, even though they really should not, even though they really should be much easier to solve than the problem of producing a large enough economic pie. Yeah, how, how do you view, um, perhaps less so, I'm not sure about in the States, but here in the UK and much of Western Europe, I mean, growth since 2009 has been almost completely flat um, for the best part of a decade. And Starting in 2005, we lost the 2% growth per year. Um, we lost the doubling of technological prowess every generation that we'd had since 1870. Um, in 2010, we demonstrated that, no, we had learned no lessons about how to maintain you know, a full employment economy in which labor had um, at least some market power to ask sometimes for a raise. And, you know, add to those the fact that the United States stops being a benevolent hegemon but starts throwing its weight around, saying we like this for us and we kind of don't really care what you think. Um, and, you know, it starts with George W. Bush, but it gets hamped up with Donald Trump. Um, those they think those three things I think um, plus the fact that we have a big new problem global warming um, and we're not dealing with it at all we do not have a civilization that can deal with it and this global problem on a global scale all those mean that the story of the 20th century which is one of rapidly increasing wealth the necessity to rewrite the or rewrite the societal code running on top of it so things don't crash um, and the question of a debate between von Hayek and Polanyi about how to rewrite it um, that that big story comes to an end in 2010 and you know a new story uh, begins I mean it's that new story necessarily a sort of something to be terribly concerned about i mean there's a funny line in the book where you talk about um sort of the finest minds of the generation being dedicated to selling us fake diabetes cures and things on twitter but i mean apart there's there's a lot of nonsense out there in the kind of social media sphere a lot of doom scrolling and, and crap 
But are there what what new technologies or applications are you seeing that, as an economist, makes you excited about you know the potential for for to get out of this slow growth trend? Oh, you know the information technologies are absolutely wonderful and marvelous. You know, if we can actually use them for our entertainment and knowledge, rather than have other people use them to hack our brains. Um, in various ways, you know, that, you know, right now, um, there's this enormous fuss about Apple's app tracking transparency um, and how horrible it is that small businesses no longer find it easy to figure out who their potential customers are, um, as Apple is now requiring that people opt in. Um, to letting websites track them across domains. Um, and people are saying this is radically unfair to other companies and other people, and this is Apple destroying value. But all Apple is doing is asking people, do you want to opt in to letting Facebook and company track you um, so they have a good idea of who you are? And I would think that Facebook and company, um, if they really are institutions that are working for our good, for our good, that are working to sell us things we will enjoy buying, um, that they should really be able to make that case. And yet the background assumption of the discussion is that they won't and they can't. You know, that's Apple that's doing this to them. It's not that they've failed to earn the trust of their users. Um, and, you know, they failed to earn the trust of their users, I think, because too many of us think that social media and company are more interested in pressing our emotional buttons and lead us to buy things or watch things that afterwards we really wish we hadn't, um, and that we do not want them to know more about us than they already do, because we do not think that they're using their knowledge for good. Um, that's something to make one depressed about information technologies, but we should be able to get beyond that. You know, the biotechnologies as well. Um, you know, absolutely marvelous things for life extension and for you know, rewriting enough of the genetic code of your cells on the fly um, to do a lot to cure even chronic diseases, um, let alone genetically inherited ones in the course of a person's lifetime. Um, we have so many scientists and engineers working on so much and there is so much about the world and about how we operate in it and how we ourselves work and exist that we do not understand that there could well be a very, very bright future for technology. Um, you want to say that in the world of 1500, the average standard of living worldwide was something like $2.50 a day, something like $900 a year, what the World Bank would call extreme poverty. You know, it's 12000 a year today. We can look forward to futures in which it's 60000 per capita come, you know, 2100. And then if things go right, we could have $250,000 um, per capita, per year of real income for the average person in 2200, in which case the average person would live as well as does a senior Berkeley economics professor right, today. 
which really strikes me as a quite utopian standard of living. Um, or maybe it would be utopian if the dogs had not just gotten into the laundry. Yeah, it's an occupational hazard, I think. Uh, in, you mentioned another aspect of social media I'm interested in getting your thoughts on. Are, in your conclusion, you write that individuals acting in particular ways at precise moments, some of which we've spoken about already, you know, Hitler, Stalin, these people... Um, and you say, not just thinking thoughts, but finding themselves with opportunities to make those thoughts influential matters profoundly. I just wonder if you think that that ability to, for big thinkers to get their thoughts into the right places is diluted a bit by the kind of velocity and quantity of ideas and news and opinions that we have. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Having contemporary culture compared to those previous eras we talked about. Uh, attention is still limited, right? Um... It's a, the fact that attention is limited fights with virality. Um, I'd say the smartest person to read about on this or listen to is Ezra Klein, who is greatly worried that social media produces a politics and discourse of enemies, as opposed to a politics and discourse of kind of discussion and argumentation. Um... Zeynep Tufekci is another person who I think is extremely insightful on this, and so I would tell you to go interview them, um, that they are people who are qualified to have opinions on this. And all I know is it's tremendously important and that good people should be working, top people should be working on it. Sure. And just to, just to finish, um, finish off, I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of gloom about the kind of state of America at the moment, particularly after January the 6th and things like this, and fear that this will be the Chinese century and that America will be supplanted. But when you look at your own country, what do you see as the biggest abiding strengths of the American economy and society, things that give you optimism for the coming decades? You have to say that that breaking a tradition, a 225-year tradition of the peaceful transfer of political power you know, that was started by John Adams and Thomas Jefferson in 1800, um, that in a good world, everyone who participated in that breaking and everyone who stood by and applauded it and everyone who's kind of standing by with their sucking their thumb and pretending it didn't really happen... And I'm looking at you this morning, Ross, do that. Um, that those people should be deeply ashamed and should by now have given all they have to the poor and taken up a life of anonymous service to others. That that was a tremendous destruction of the country's social capital and something to be greatly, greatly mourned. Um, but we are an open society. Um, we are, except when social media and grifting politicians um, hack our brains, we are a tolerant society, and we are a society that is better than any other society ever in humanity at making people into Americans. You know, the only close 
analog at all is the success of the late Roman Republic and the Roman Empire at making people into Romans. And societies that are good at attracting talent and winning converts from outside, from all over the world, have a dynamism and a progressive force to them that you know, other societies do not. Um, you know, that right now China is making a play for its system being in some sense superior. You know, say Vladimir Lenin married to um, Friedrich von Hayek, uh, blessed by Master Kung. And I have strong sense that America's, you know, Friedrich von Hayek um, married to Karl Polanyi, uh, blessed by John Maynard Keynes. Isn't the end going to succeed and is the end going to be dominant, I would say in large part, because, you know, Keynes never lived in the United States. He only visited occasionally. And when he did so, he was horrified at things like the um, summer climate. There is a story about his wife being found during World War II in the Washington, D.C. neighborhood of Georgetown, being found crouched in the refrigerator naked um, because it was so hot. Um, and although Hayek and Polanyi moved here, they were both born in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, yet they are in America's DNA to an extraordinary degree. And that has got to make you hopeful. Okay. Brad, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. To all our listeners, uh, Brad's book, Slouching Towards Utopia, is out, well, 15th of September, so pretty much right now. Uh, do go out and get yourself a copy. It's really a hugely broad, engaging, but also detailed book full of fascinating little vignettes and very well written. So do encourage you to read thank that. Thank you. And it's readable for an economist, at least. It is, I know. Veronica, thanks a lot, Brad. Take care.